0: Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine.
1: Welcome to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with creativity, courage, and curiosity. Our members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions. We hope to see you there.
0: We do. And today we're excited to welcome into the studio Terry Banner Fitzsimmons. So, welcome, Terry, to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.
2: Yes, I've been really looking
0: forward to this. Thank you. So are we. Your career was in sociology. And today you're the author of five books. And you also interview women over 70. And so, We'd like to hear in a moment what you learned from them. But first, in 2018, you lost everything you owned in a fire. And you were determined to thrive, not merely survive. I can't imagine how awful that must have been. So tell us, what was your life like before the catastrophe? And how has that changed you? What what had to happen for you to find happiness and joy?
2: Well you know sometimes i think that spirit god whatever it is that we believe in a higher power was there to really kick me in the butt i mean i was on this treadmill of life very much into materialism uh, we had just bought the house up near paradise california and that was our dream home for for retirement and i was having temper tantrums we'd only been up there i guess for about a month, when my mother fell up in Canada, she was in her 90s, she broke her hip. So I had to go up and be with her for for four months, came back and then the fire. But when we got the house, I went, Oh, my gosh, there's not enough space for my clothes. I mean, it was an older home. So they had the tiny closets. I didn't have anywhere to hang all my hats, all my jewelry, all my degrees, my titles, on and on. Everything about possessions so spirit was ready for me to let go of everything Um, I was substituting I was just kept busy throughout life without really experiencing it and so the fire just truly transformed my life I mean I am so glad that it happened in retrospect because I am truly the phoenix that has risen from the ashes uh, the person I was before the fire, thank gosh, is is buried in those those ashes, and I I feel like I'm in the company of Buddha, Jesus, the Dalai Lama, where you have to lose everything to gain everything and to get a whole new perspective on life. Mm. Wow.
0: And and what what were you for? I, I'm sorry. What? What were you doing before that?
2: Before that? What was your lifeline? Um, I was always kept busy. I always had three or four different jobs. For instance, I was teaching sociology like for 20 years, but I was also teaching at the elementary school. I did independent study, home hospital teaching, uh, just always, always keeping, keeping busy. And and it's really interesting because I professed I to be a very spiritual person. I had a meditation uh space for myself. I read all the books by Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Bruce Lee. But it was almost being a hypocrite. I really wasn't living what I was espousing. So, and it was really interesting because. After the fire, when I thought I lost everything, there was a golden nugget in it that I had saved all my books on my smartphone. And so I had all my spiritual books on there. And I remember Deepak Chopra's quote that knowledge is useless unless it's applied. And that's helped spur me on to, okay, things have got to change in my life. Mm -hmm. So was that an immediate revelation for you or? how how to
1: say a little more about that process of you've lost everything and and then you you know are transformed what happened in between
2: well it's like you know when they talk about the different stages of death facing death you have the grief the anger negotiating I was doing that with, with with the fire but with me I had to Immediately survive like taking the bull by the horns. After the fire, the uh, the night, the night that I didn't know we lost everything, but we went into Walmart up in Northern California, and I walked out of the store with. We had two little bags, and I remember how holding them up, going, "This is one hundred and twenty-six dollars of toilet trees." clothes, pajamas, <laughs> toothbrush, the necessities, and going, this is me. This, this is this is all I have. So then the next day I told Jim we have to go down to the insurance people. I had to get a laptop, start the insurance, and my fiancé just completely fell apart. He couldn't deal with any of it. He's still not, not the same. He never will be. But I had to take charge. So all of a sudden there was a strength in me that I never knew I had before. I had to, I had to survive. And and I thought, I don't have any choice. I've, I've got to do this. So then when I started having the nightmares because I was on a school bus, escaping the flames with the children and hearing people screaming and exploding tanks. So I had the nightmares, but I was smart enough to get help. And so I went for counseling. And the counselor knew that I loved to journal all my life. I always put my feelings down. And so he told me, this this is beautiful. You're you're saying what other people are feeling when they experience the fire. You should get this published. So then I thought, well, if other people are feeling this way, then I can reach out to them and help them. And turning into, I didn't like the word survivor, uh, or, I mean, sorry, victim. And so I want, I transcended that into survivor because there were so many people, Catherine, that I called it stuckness, and they still are. They haven't moved on with their life since then. But I kept thinking, I don't have a choice. I have to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, so you had children at the time, Sherry? No, I was on a school bus. I was substituting, wow. and with I mean, I could have gone home after we evacuated, but I was still responsible for five students. So I just talked on a bus to protect them. And then we got on the bus, and it took us hours to get to get out of paradise.
1: so I you know we have a national and international Audience, so I'm maybe not everyone might not know about the Paradise tragedy. Yes. Can you just explain that a bit?
2: Yes, it was uh, in Northern California, uh, in Paradise, California, and it was caused by faulty wiring from uh, PGE. Now, Ron Howard, I would imagine everybody knows who Ron Howard is, uh, he had ties with Paradise, and so he had. Uh, done a documentary on that with interviewing other people, and there's actually two other school teachers. I wasn't with them; they were at another school. He interviewed them, and it was qu- quite a powerful. It was in a rural area, and there was only two ways out of Paradise, so it took forever for all of us to mm-hmm. to get out there. And hearing the people screaming in the streets because they were stranded and the exploding gas tanks i mean it was it was absolutely horrendous and it happened so fast we were living on a cul-de-sac and apparently the whole cul-de-sac was just wiped out in a matter of minutes because of you know of all the all the trees up there Hmm. did that start your writing career now when i wrote my my book about untie the knot in cannot This goes into my my counseling career. All my life, I've wanted to be a writer. I fancied myself as writing all these great novels. But then my father, who was an educator, oh, no, no, no. Oh, look at this. No, no. Oh, oh, you, you can't write this and just wiped it out of me. And so it wasn't until I fell back into college at the age of 40 that I started to get the courage but it was after the fire, I thought I've got nothing to lose. I can throw my words out there, and if it can help out one person, then I've done my job right, So now I cannot stop writing. I write every day.
0: <laughs> uh-huh, so, so how old were you when the fire occurred?
2: Let's see, I just. Started my seventy fourth chapter on the first of June, so it was three years ago. So I would, I uh, know what two thousand eighteen to now. Boy, I was about turning seventy. Uh
0: huh. Wow. Yeah. And so and so, uh, how did you find new housing? What 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 did you do?
2: Oh, oh, it was such a whirlwind. We there was no housing to be had because there was another major fire the year before in the surrounding area. And so the housing prices were astronomical. And so we couldn't, we couldn't find anything. So I just took a leap of faith and bought a mobile home up in Medford, Oregon. And uh, my fiance hated it. And I don't blame them. It rained all the time and it was dismal, but, um, I was able to find, uh, it was wonderful for me. I found wonderful employment up there. Even in my golden years, I was able to substitute for all these special ed classes up there. So I was loving it, but Jim hated it up there. So I, I thought, okay, fine. We need the sunshine. He needs to be able to golf. So then we moved down to near Palm Springs, California, made that transition, but it was really difficult to find the work. It's another thing I really had to fight for because I'm a Canadian citizen and I didn't have any identification. So I had to fight to get my green card, my passport, my social security, everything. I had to really fight for that before I could really move on with my life. But now I'm living near Palm Springs and absolutely loving it.
0: You um you talked about interviewing women over seventy.
2: Yes. So, uh,
0: to what purpose were you doing that, and and did that become a book or or what?
2: Well, it's on my blog. Uh, I'm a sociologist at heart. I always call sociologists as being peeping toms of society. You know, I eavesdrop on on conversations and try to figure out motivations. I love psychology anyway. But I just find it really sad when I see people not truly living and listening to people uh, in the community. And they're talking about the past. Oh, I had this and I used to be a CEO or I used to be this. And I kept thinking, but you're living in the present now. You've got so much to offer. There's so much out here for us. We've got the swimming pool, we've got the gym. And then I see all these other people who I term made up the word thrivers, who are Uh, In my writing club, there's a man in his late 80s. He's writing poetry for the first time. Another man is doing photography. Other people are writing books. And so I I just want to motivate people to to thrive instead of just existing.
0: And and so what are some of the ways you're going about doing that?
2: Uh, One thing is, well, especially in the swimming pool, is encouraging people. I read this book called Simple Steps and it was, you know, if you you walk five steps today, you can do that for the next 10 days. And after that, gee, you can walk 10 steps, 15 steps, but always congratulate yourself and encouraging them in the pool. I go up to strangers and, and wow, look at all the laps that you did. Oh, that's wonderful. Or talking about to people in the gym. Of things that they're doing, complimenting them, and you know, being their cheerleaders.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds and
2: like. One woman
0: crusade.
2: Yes, thank you. Yeah, I know. There's there's one woman I know who used to live in a retirement park, and ever since I've known her for ten years, her whole life is just sitting on the porch watching watching life go by, and I'm thinking, what a sad existence. This isn't the way life is supposed to be and trying to get people to let go of labels. You know, a retirement is really difficult for people because all of a sudden overnight, I'm no longer a teacher. I'm no longer a sociologist. I'm no longer this, but the world is wide open. You can spend your time going back to what you wanted to do as a child and having fun with your life, enjoying it, laughing. Oh, laughter is so important. <laughs> You tell us about your books.
1: I'm, I'm very curious about and who you what you write
2: about and who you're writing for. Well, w- wide array of, of topics in there, but that's who I am. The first two books, uh, Phoenix Rising from the Ashes and Smoldering Embers of Paradise, those are my two books about the fire. And coincidentally, I would go out and uh, do book readings and book signings to, to help people, not only for the fire, because fire is a symbol, it could be an earthquake, it could be a death, any any type of trauma of getting getting over it. And as luck would have it, the pandemic stepped in. So there went that. Okay, so I move on. And so being a sociologist, I loved finding ways of teaching my students about all the impacts of society that make you who you are for instance you have your your parents who instill values in you then you have your peers you have your teachers and and so on so I wrote a book of uh, untie the knot n-o-t in cannot because in my teaching experiences I heard so many times I can't do this misfits I can't And even adults, when I was teaching them an independent study, Fitz, don't make me do this algebra. I can't do it. And I thought, how sad is that? We need to be socializing um, our offspring to believe that they can do things. And so I wrote it and it was very therapeutic to me. But even looking at it now, I was writing it quite a bit of the victim stage. It was about my life where... I was taught I cannot write, I cannot do this. Teachers told me, oh, Terry, just keep your mouth quiet when we're singing because you can't sing. All of those. So that was that was my book with that. So it's being used to help counsel girls for them to believe that they can do things. And now my baby was uh best friends of. Uh, your compass and the the true north, because I've always been an advocate for women's rights and, and trying to build up the strength in women. And I've done that all my life. So, but I've always been so intrigued by the courageous acts of women with Eleanor Roosevelt, the book started off in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And it was written from the perspective of two best friends across the country. So they wrote letters to each other. And I went through the Packhorse librarians, those courageous women that went up into the Appalachian Mountains during the, yes, and all the factory workers and the child labor. And I had about 50 books of research of During the Depression, the heartbreaking signs, child for sale, that people had to sell their their children. And looking at children working in the factories, and I had all all the pictures of that. And then going through the beginnings of the Second World War, and through it all was the, the theme of racism and the insidious acts that were happening because of racism and what was happening with the Japanese and then going in after the war and then going into the 1950s. And there again, women fighting for their rights and looking how the underdog was was, uh, shown, depicted in in different movies. So then the, the last book was just published is Redemption for Gertrude. And that one was a heavy duty one. It's about a young woman right at the end of World War I. She lives in a village and she's brought up with hatred. She's brought up socialized to hate the Jewish people. And she was a very intelligent woman and she was indoctrinated into this hatred where she ended up working in Munich and working for Hitler. And I did all the research to make sure that was authentic. But as she got into it, oh, my gosh, this is real. People are actually getting killed. They're actually getting tortured. And so she found out what was really going on. And then she escaped and she got on a different personality. But it's up to the reader. Should there be redemption for her? even though she changed and after she did all these evil things. And my last book, (laughs) I Got Class. Oh, that was so much fun to write. It's from the classroom. No, yeah, from college to the classroom and beyond. And I talked about how I fell into college by mistake. I was 40 years old and enrolled in the wrong class. And they encouraged me to to stay in college, and just my college experiences—the idea of being the invisible student in the classroom, how women get ignored, the professors, you know, pay attention to the to the male students rather than us. And so how I ended up graduating my master's degree, valedictorian, I had to really fight for that. And then I went into chapters of all my different teaching experiences. Uh, There's four or five segments on working on the reservation, working at an Indian high school, Um, oh, working with parolees. I did a career class for parolees, and my independent study, and then, of course, special education. So I had fun writing those because right now we're having so many heartbreaking stories in our education system right now about what labels, you know, for gender names and and everything going on. I thought I would do something heartwarming about teaching.
1: Just going back to the women over 70 that you've talked with, what are some of the things that stand out for you that you hear?
2: Oh my gosh, there are so many, Catherine. I have one lady at the pool. She's uh, in her late 70s and she's in a wheelchair. And every day around 9.30, you see her whizzing by by the pool and she sets up her umbrella that she's got somehow attached to the wheelchair and she pulls over a table and does all these laps. She does 15 to 20 laps every single day. Um, there's another lady that I, Uh, attend a meditation class with and she just swam 66 laps the other day Um, and I'm listening to people in the gym as their exercise I get to know everybody in there now I've got and just watching them wanting to feel better about their lives they just don't want to exist Mm -hmm. they're totally Drivers, so I ask them what motivates them, and they are they they they're puzzled. They're like me. Drivers go like me. Well, what other choice do I have? I'm alive. Make the most of it, and so and then I'm finding there are no coincidences. Of course, there's another author that lives a few blocks away from me, Aggie Jordan, and she's doing exactly the same thing. So she's writing stories about it. So there's this more and more interest that we want to be role models mm-hmm. for the next generation coming up to look after yourselves.
0: Yes, excellent. Right. So so what do you intend to do as you move forward here, Gary?
2: Oh that is really interesting, Gail, because what every year, the day before my so-called birthday, I go off by myself and meditate and write and i open up an envelope that i wrote to myself the year before and so i want to see if i've made a difference in this past year have i reached any goals uh, and just just go over and then i just start writing and so for the first time i w- i remember writing i am writing this is the first my my 74th chapter this is my first page and then I don't know what's going to unfold for me, and that's okay. And this has been the first time all my books have been published. Uh, I'll wait for a muse to <laughs> come down and inspire me, but that's okay. I'm just thoroughly enjoying every day right now. So, but still meditating, going into my meditation classes, and being a part of my community.
0: So, so do you feel that your life definitely would have been different had you not experienced the
2: fire? Oh, most definitely, most definitely, Gail. Mm-hmm. As I said before, I had to lose everything to gain everything, and it taught me so much. And now, even uh, my fiance is away for three weeks, so I'm going through the kitchen and my closet and shedding all kinds of dishes and overload of glasses and giving them away and just lightening up my mm-hmm. life.
0: Well, time has a way of going very
2: quickly, but as, as we end
0: here, I am just wondering, could you sum up for our listeners, for our viewers, what, what thriving is, what if we have one takeaway, what should you do? One
2: only one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) two. Okay. When I go, uh, the idea of of thriving, and and I'll just go into. I had an aneurysm in my brain, and I had double vision, and I had to fight to get a doctor. I'll, I'll make this brief, but another turning point in my life. Well. I had the MRI, and that's when they found out I had the aneurysm. So I got all these coils in my head. Well, for a whole year and a half, I kept falling. I kept tripping over curbs. Um, I I couldn't see. I still had double vision. I couldn't drive. I couldn't see the street signs. So uh, this March, I went to the eye doctor, and he said, didn't you read an article called I Ain't Crazy? It's all in my head because of the aneurysm. And I said, yes niece, you ain't crazy. It's all in your head. Your eyes are perfect. But because of the aneurysm, they need, they need to be adjusted. So Gail, I got these magical glasses. Mm-hmm. And I burst into tears, I can literally see. I, I could see the curbs. I could see the street signs, I can see the vibrant colors. So my takeaway is that We need to live every day with that sense of awe. Take your nature walk and see, oh, I never saw that before. Or I never noticed that before. Don't be a spectator with all the mundane people holding up their cameras at a concert. They're missing out on the concert. They're trying to freeze that. They're not feeling it. They're not experiencing it. They're clicking. It's up to us to experience every moment. It's so important for us to to thrive.
0: A beautiful note for us to end. It up. is. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Sharing. And listeners,
1: thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas. And this is a good thing. And still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. So support Women Over 70 and let your voice be heard. Help us change the conversation about women aging.